You are listening to an MLGA Network podcast. The only people for me are the mad ones. The world is filled with the boring and the barely conscious. Misery loves company. But we don't have to live this way. Jessica and I are here to talk to those the system rejects, to radicals and thought criminals. The ones who never yawn or say a commonplace thing, but push the boundaries of acceptable discourse. Those who stare reality in the face and dare it to be different. History isn't made by the timid, and fun is not had by the perpetually afraid. We are the Mad Ones. So let's get to it. Welcome to the Mad Ones. I'm your bourbon-swilling, buck-knife-wielding host, Cam Harless. And with me, as always, is our soup and <laughs> horror enthusiast, hostess, Miss Jessica Green. How are you doing, Jessica? I'm good. How do you do? I'm I'm doing really great. I have we have an exciting guest tonight. In fact, before I do his introduction, I'm gonna have to take a deep breath. So, <laughs> you know, let's let's do this. All right. Tonight we're joined by a titan of, of on the side of liberty, the anti the anti war voice on the radio, in print, and online. The source to almost every anti-war argument I have ever made, author of Fool's Errand and Enough Already, editor-in-chief of antiwar.com, the head of the Libertarian Institute, the Encyclopedia Brown of Foreign Policy, a historian of the now with over 55, with almost 5,500 interviews under his belt, and the voice that keeps Bill Crystal awake at night, Mr. Scott Horton. Hey, how are you guys doing? Thanks for having me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm very excited for this because you know we've we've had some really cool people on, but I think I'm the most nervous right now because like I like since I became libertarian, since I started listening to Ron Paul and Tom Woods, I was just like I remember the first time I listened to a Tom Woods episode with you on it, I was like, this dude knows so much, and it's inc- so incredibly impressive the fact that you can talk through all of these different foreign policy points over the last 50 years, 60 years in chronological order without skipping a beat. So for starters, do you have a photographic memory? Because I don't know how you do it because I could never do that. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I do have a very visual uh, memory. And I mean, really, honestly, my cheat is, uh, you know, when you mentioned I I am right at 5,495 (laughs) <laughs> interviews right now so it'll be 5500 this friday um wow. but almost all of those it, it, from 2003 all the way through 2016 those interviews were just clipped out of my show which was a live radio show which had interviews but it was also just me talking most of the time and so that's my big cheat was i've been not just reading antiwar.com every day but i've been essentially for most of this time anyway I've been teaching what's on antiwar.com every day for years and years and years. And also one of my jobs at antiwar.com was I was the one who put all those links in the Justin Romando articles. So <laughs> for people who remember how that was, you know, in the Bush years and in the Obama years, where's absolute overkill of uh, shiny red hyperlinks in Romando articles, that was me putting all those in there. So that's like a deep dive for three hours a night, three nights a week for 10 years straight or something like that. So that's a lot of, uh, I put my time in, I guess, in terms of all of that. And then also, I guess I can picture years pretty easily in my head. I can picture decades and time and whatever different shapes and things. So I can always remember 
what month an article came out because I can kind of see it in my head yeah. of what time you know it was. So um, that I guess is a little bit of a cheat for me that helps <laughs> me with the names and dates and keeping things straight. I think um, what makes it so hard for people to kind of parse these things out is that there is an information overload. And to go to have someone to put things in a chronicle, chronological order really is helpful because so much of this is part of my own memory coming up through childhood and young adulthood. But I don't have the ability to like put them all in order like that. And when you do have them in order, things start to become clear to you. And so that's like a, a huge service that you've provided me personally. Because great. Well, that's you know, the like, whole point. That's exactly yeah. <laughs> the point. Is, um, I'm not really trying to do like breaking uh, top secret stuff that you don't know. I mean, there's a little bit of that. But basically, like you and your dad and everybody knows that Ronald Reagan backed Iraq against Iran in the 1980s. But the question is, who cares? Right. What does that have to do with anything? And then so my answer is, well, see, if it wasn't for that, then it wouldn't have been this. And then if it wasn't for that, then this thing wouldn't have happened, which is the cause of the thing. And then. So, in other words, I guess in that same to your back to your first question about my visual memory and imagination here, I kind of project that onto everybody else too, right? Like everyone has some kind of timeline of what yeah. history looks like, however it's shaped in your own mind. I don't know, but there's some kind of timeline going back to the Carter years, right? So all I'm trying to do is fill in enough puzzle pieces that you get to that moment as you were just talking about where you go, oh, okay, now I get it. Right. Now it makes right. sense why they do these crazy things that don't make sense is they're trying to make up for the thing they did that didn't make sense before that. <laughs> <You know>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, and that's, and that's, what's interesting is what's great is, you know, I was born in the late eighties. And so by the time high school came around and we started talking about, you know, the Soviet union and the cold war and all of that, first off, none of the stuff that you talk about is mentioned because it's not the approved narrative from the state. But mm -hmm. on top of that, there's a lot of stuff that I, I may have lived through, but I was too young to actually have any memories of. And so uh, you inspired me, uh, it was directly you inspired me a year ago to dig into uh, Ruby Ridge and Waco mm -hmm. and do very condensed retellings of those. And so, like, I, I can't tell you how many things I read from you or listened to episodes that you did. Jim Brevard is a wealth of knowledge. And, like, I used him, verified, and I did all of this. And right after that, I spent probably two months, the first two months of last year, like, mm. just in Waco and living through it in this kind of, um, not not personally, but, like, through other people. And so I hit, I finished Waco and I was just in this emotionally battered place because <laughs> I was like, this was horrifying. This was terrible. And I, I actually emailed you and I was like, Hey, I want to do Oklahoma city next. And you were like, here, you can use these files that I have. And I looked at the files and it was, you know, over a thousand. And I was like, Oh, that was you. Okay. I remember. Yeah. That. <laughs> <laughs> and I looked at it and I was like, few. it's hard to keep track. Everybody has their own name and their internet name and their email name. And anyway, <laughs> but, uh, I, I looked at that, that just dearth of knowledge. And I was like, I don't know if I'm emotionally prepared for this yet. And so I've, I've put that on the back burner and I'm, uh, Jessica and I were actually talking about it, uh, 
earlier is that that's what we really want to dig into next is Oklahoma City. And so I thought, you know, everyone who has you on to their show is always like foreign policy, foreign policy, foreign policy, which is the most important libertarian thing is war, period. But this domestic policy that I, I feel like things are they may they, they may just be getting worse right now and i think you can if you look back in history you can see where ruby ridge was a big part of that in waco and oklahoma city but the first time i ever interacted with you was on twitter because i watched an oklahoma city bombing documentary and i saw a picture of timothy mcveigh selling um bumper stickers outside of waco and they had a swastika and a hammer and sickle on them and I did not understand who the hell sells that. And I was just like, I'm going to message Scott. Do you know why he sold these things? But due to that, I would love to hear, uh, since you are older and you live through these things, I think you probably, I think you graduated. I was listening to you on uh, Josh Smith last night and you said you graduated in 95. So yeah. like all of these stories are ones that you'd remember with clarity. And so yeah. I'm curious about these and I would love to talk about that, especially with the anniversaries coming up this month. I'd, sure. I'd love to dig in that if, into that if you'd be interested. Well, in listen, I mean, <clears throat> I was just a high school kid when Oklahoma happened. Um, so, you know, all the credit here goes to J.D. Cash and a lot of other writers and investigative reporters from that era who did all the heavy lifting here. Um, there's a guy now named Richard Booth, who I think is a really great journalist who's working on a book that we're going to publish later this year at the Libertarian Institute. And this is his single issue. So, okay. and, and I really like his aesthetic. He's got a real journalistic take on this. He's not a kook either way. <laughs> um, uh, he's a real careful guy and he has assembled a mass of documents. If you go to libertarianinstitute.org slash OKC, that's everything that I had given you the keys to back then. Yeah. Which, hang on, let me close this window because I got crickets and trains and things. <laughs> yeah, no worries. <laughs> no worries. I thought maybe I'd get some fresh air during this, but no. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, no, the deal is that, um, yeah, so, so anyone can find the, uh, all the original source material and then all the best journalism, all that is at libertarianinstitute.org slash OKC. And you can go take a look at this stuff yourself. Um, but, you know, essentially the story is there were a lot of people who knew they were lying from the very beginning about what had happened. And the ATF was not there when they were the target of the attack. And all of a sudden they show up in battle gear, you know, 15 minutes after the bomb goes off and then tell a bunch of lies about what heroes they were. And all this kind of thing. But meanwhile, I think 19 kids were killed in the daycare center. And so how right. come the ATF got a warning not to be there, but the kids in the daycare center didn't get a warning? And this yeah. kind of thing. Um, so there was, from the very beginning, it was like that. And there were also accusations that it must have been Muslims who did it. And mm -hmm. so then there were conspiracy theories about, uh, I guess, an Iraqi guy and his Palestinian house painting crew that were falsely accused of having something to do with all this. Um, and there were just a lot of red herrings, but there was all, there was a lot of interest and see, here's part of the political dynamic. And you'll be familiar with this, the way it's taking place now, the way they're demonizing the entire kind of populist right in the name of the January 6th, right at the Capitol. Um, 
the insurrection, as they call it. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> How many insurrections so they, don't include but, guns? Like yeah, that, that made no sense to me. Well, look, I mean, there it's not about making sense. It's about Absolutely. trying to smear people and and make giant category errors. Like the yeah. believers of QAnon are equivalent to the American right or even yeah. the American populist right. And then the American populist right is equivalent to the entire American right, including mm -hmm. the conservatives and the rich old country club guys and whoever, which is all just nonsense. Right. It was the same thing they did in 95 is they said, you know, it wasn't just everybody to the right of Rush Limbaugh. It was Rush Limbaugh did it. It yeah. was, it, you know, which I don't know how people understand that. To me, he represents one hair to the right of center, right? This is yeah. establishment conservatism. Um, and Bill Clinton blamed him for it and blamed essentially every white guy with a gun in the country for it mm -hmm. who had, you know, nothing to do with it. And then more narrowly, they blamed the militia movement. And importantly, yeah. mm -hmm. this was the militia movement that grew up in reaction to Waco. And yeah. the thing of it was the only connection to the militia movement at all was that McVeigh had shown up at a meeting of the Michigan militia and they had told him to beat it because he was a Nazi and they didn't want anything to do with him. And then from there, they went on and said, look, all the militias are Nazis. They're all racists. They all hate blacks and Jews and they all want a giant race war against the government and they all worship Hitler and all of this. Meanwhile, the reality was the militias that had risen up, especially after Waco, and there had been some before Waco, but especially the ones that came after Waco, they were avowedly not racist. And in fact, like I, I knew some of these guys, you know, in Austin back in the day, there were, you know, plenty of them around the Access Channel kind of community and, and whatever at the time. They didn't talk about blacks and Jews. I mean, they talked about the Rothschilds and the New World Order, but yeah. to them, Rothschild wasn't a code word for Jew. It was a family of family. bankers who have a lot of political power and probably most of them didn't even know the Rothschilds were Jewish and didn't make the connection to Zionism or any kind of thing. It was the Rockefeller, you know, the Rockefellers are Presbyterians and Baptists and Catholics <laughs> and stuff. They're not Jews at all. And they were always, as, as even Murray Rothbard said, he called it the Rockefeller world empire. They were the conspirators. And in the John Birch kind of populist right conspiracy theory history, it's the Rockefellers, not the Jews who were really like at the core of the New World Order conspiracy anyway, right? So if you hung out with these patriots in the 90s, they just weren't talking about blacks and Jews. They just weren't. I was there. You know, I know these guys. And they just, that wasn't their thing. It just wasn't. Um, and, but then you ask Bill Clinton and TV News and they go, all militia guys are Nazis. And, and all conservatives are militia guys, <laughs> you know, this just the whole thing um, smearing the entire right wing as a radical right. Meanwhile, the reality was McVeigh had six or 10 friends who actually were Nazis, who were not militia guys. They were literal swastika tattoo skinhead bank robbers, you know, like essentially prison Nazis, right? Aryan Republican no. army from the prisons, um, you know, that kind of branch of of radical rightism is that's the origin of it right is from american prisons yeah. um and uh so these guys weren't militia guys they were nazis which is a totally different category of activity you know essentially yeah. right these were like real ass skinheads and so they they had a bank robbery ring and it was the the ara bank robbery ring were the ones who helped mcveigh do it apparently allegedly quite seemingly <laughs> And then the reason that they all got away with it 
was because the ATF and the FBI both had investigations into the groups that did it, but then didn't stop it. And the ATF mm -hmm. wanted to make a move and the FBI stopped them and said, we'll handle this, but then they didn't handle it. And seemingly one of the major flaws in their operation was just the Nazis rented a second truck. You guys yep. got a GPS and you're following around a yellow rider truck. We'll just get another yellow rider truck. And mm -hmm. then these cops are just a bunch of meathead idiots. They don't know. So the, the bomb squad shows up at eight o'clock in the morning. They hang out for 45 minutes or so, and then they leave. And then the truck pulls up at nine. And then, but look, I mean, it, I can't sit here and tell you like a narrative from beginning to end of mm -hmm. here's what happened. Here's who did it. Here's how they did it. And we know these, you know, for a fact. What I can do is I can bring up things like, well, we know that there are 24 eyeball witnesses who saw McVeigh in Oklahoma City that morning. Now, none of them were called to the stand to testify against him. And that's for the simple fact that all 24 witnesses saw him with somebody else. Everybody who saw him saw him with somebody else. And then the government just didn't call him and didn't even look that way. And in the book, Oklahoma City by Gumbel and Charles, the U.S. attorney admits that and they spin it. That, well, we were afraid that we would jeopardize the capital case, the death penalty case against McVeigh if we went after everyone, because then that would give his lawyers room to say there's reasonable doubt. Maybe McVeigh was just the dummy who and the patsy who'd been put in the driver's seat. But maybe there was these other men who had masterminded it who were more guilty than him somehow. And so mm -hmm. as they admit, as they put it, this is their excuse. And, and by the way, as I already said, the real reason, I think, is because these guys were all known to the cops. They were all flipped hmm. state witnesses and undercover informants. And both ATF and FBI had investigations into these Nazis before they did it. And so that was why they covered it up. But then their excuse for covering it up, because they essentially admit that they covered it up. And then their excuse is, well, but we didn't want to jeopardize the, the death penalty case against McVeigh. <laughs> Which, by the way, that's not for them to decide, right? Like they, they are mandated yeah. that they shall pursue the uh, enforcement of the law. That's it, right? That's, you know, that's the yeah. president's job and theirs on down um, that they shall faithfully execute the law. And by the way, if you're really concerned that McVeigh is going to not get the death penalty because you prosecute everybody involved, that that's really your excuse. Well, see what happens and then press your luck when it comes to the state. And make sure that the state prosecutors, because the federal prosecution was only over the eight federal employees who died. Um, and then the, the rest were, I guess, whatever state workers or whatever, whoever else the people were in there. There's only eight people that they were prosecuted for in federal court. And then Terry Nichols, the co-conspirator, was tried separately on state mm -hmm. charges. Um, and because he wasn't convicted of a death penalty offense, he was barely convicted at all. He was convicted of involuntary manslaughter, in fact. And that was why they prosecuted him twice, because they wanted to get the death penalty against him in Oklahoma. So they could have done the same to McVeigh. They could have said, you know what? Oops, we prosecuted so many people that the guy who was most guilty, the jury, for some reason, didn't want to give him the death penalty, which I think is crazy. The, the jury would have given him the no death way. penalty anyway. He was the one driving the mm -hmm. truck. He's no. as guilty as hell, no matter who put him in that driver's seat. He was as responsible as anyone, at least. So they would have given him the death penalty anyway. That's no real excuse. But even if they really thought that, well, they still have a whole other trial to go on the state level then. And, uh, and, and all the time in the world they need to put that case together because he's going to be convicted of something, you know. So it's a completely hollow excuse. But they admit it. I mean, in the, in the book, he says, 
um, the the prosecutor says, oh, I got it right here. <laughs> um, Love that you have the book right there. Larry Mackey, <laughs> he says, um, privately, Mackey never stopped wondering if others were involved and said many of his colleagues felt the same way. This is the U.S. attorney, okay? If you had said to us, anybody in the room 100% confident that McVeigh was alone, raise your hand, we would have all kept our hands in our laps. Okay, so this is the way he phrases this weird double negative. In other words, raise your hand if you think that we, the federal prosecutors, let the guilty butchers of 190 people, 180 people go free, 170 people go free. Raise your hand. They would have all had to raise their hand. Yes, we were all guilty accessories to mass murder. That's what he's saying. He's yeah. admitting it. Larry Mackey, the U.S. attorney, is admitting he let the guilty go free. He let the guilty go free. Mm -hmm. So I don't need to be a conspiracy nut on it. <laughs> there you go. And he knows as I, well as I do that, you know, who the guilty were. And there, you know, Danny you. Colson, one of the FBI agents involved, has repeatedly called for a new grand jury to reinvestigate and indict the guys who did it, et cetera. So do you um, know about you um, this woman from the Secret Service who was apparently in, almost investigated because she abused her powers in terms of looking into some of the other people who were involved in this. And What's then very quickly, I, it, Mary, I can't quite remember the last name and I left my notes in the other room, um, but that she was a, a, a secret service person who was investigating this. And very quickly, they cut the secret service out of the investigations, but that she had been trying to look into these other co-conspirators and very quickly was moved out of the investigation and no longer works for the secret service as a result. I don't know about that, but it could be. I mean, I know that um, the secret service, there, there are documents that come from the secret service um, you know, wires and communications back and forth and all that that have been released. I don't think I'm familiar with that story, but there are a lot of threads to the Oklahoma case. I mean, it's a, oh, and I'm sorry, one more thing here. This is a tangent I went on, but I forgot to tie it up was when they, when they blame the entire political right and blame the militia movement, especially, well, that motivated the militia movement to say, well, screw you. It wasn't us. It was them. And that was how from the very beginning, from 1995 and 1996, in the very beginning of it, the kind of radical right, um, broad, very broadly defined radical right media was telling the story of who these guys were and what their names were. Because, no, they weren't militia guys, but they were close enough that it wasn't too hard because Jimmy knows Tommy and Tommy knows Bobby and they know who did it. And mm -hmm. so it was all over if you read the Free Republic or, you know, the, the John Birch Society magazine, The New American, or, you know, a lot of those kind of right wing magazines at the time. Um, I think uh, uh, I'm almost certain that Guns and Ammo did some stuff. I know they did a lot on Waco. I think Guns and Ammo did some stuff on Oklahoma, too. Like, who are all these guys? I mean, we got all their names. And why are we pretending that we don't know who did this? Yeah. And do, do you, you feel think... I'm sorry. Go ahead, Cam. No, I was just going to say, do you think so? Uh, Ruby Ridge was clearly a PR nightmare. Waco was, from everything that I've read, a, a they tried to fix their image so that they wouldn't lose funding and get moved out of the Treasury Department. Um, they TF. And then that became an even bigger PR nightmare, which really led to this kind of 
fervor against the state and against the federal government. Do you think that with the way things went with naming Timothy May explicit Timothy McVeigh explicitly and having that scapegoat that that helped kind of bring down that movement that was frustrated yes, with the state? No question. And listen, they it's the same thing with the 9/11 truth stuff. You know, I don't think Dick Cheney brought those towers down, but he might as well have. And it's yeah. the same thing with Bill Clinton and his government and Oklahoma mm-hmm. City. I don't think, and I did when I was younger, um, but I don't think that they said, oh, good, a plot against a building. Let's let it happen so that we can exploit it and blame the radical right. I don't think they did. I don't think it was like that. I I haven't seen any evidence that they deliberately pulled their punches in that way. Even if they they didn't have deliberately, right. They might as well have, because what they do from, from that day and for the next year, they blamed every white guy with a gun in the country did it. And, Mm -hmm. and in fact, what they did more than anything, what they did was they rationalized Waco and they made mm-hmm. it where right. they told this story where the average American, you know, they wouldn't say it like this in English all the way thought out loud because it would break down and not make sense. But essentially the spirit of the thing is that the Branch Davidians got in a time machine and blew up the Oklahoma City Federal Building. And that's why they deserved right. to die back two years previously. Fuck them. How dare they do that? And so then if you said anything about, man, Waco, then people would say, oh, yeah, well, what about Oklahoma City? Like, right. it was, a, you know, hypnosis. And I know this from driving a cab. You know, I drove a cab for years. And there's like new developments in the Waco case would continue to come out. There's the whole reinvestigation and cover up of 1999 and all of this. And so I would talk to my customers. And if you just said Waco, I, I hate it when people talk second person. If I just said Waco, they would go, what about Oklahoma? Like as an involuntary thing, like they're trained like a monkey that they have to say, what about Oklahoma? Well, what about Oklahoma? Tell me one thing about Oklahoma. If McVeigh did it just like they say he did as revenge for Waco, then you tell me how that justifies Waco. Explain to me in any rational way how that makes it okay what they did to the Branch Davidians who were not Nazis, who were not attacking anyone. Who had not harmed anyone. And, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't have to make sense. It's all about building an excuse, having a yeah. way to rationalize a way, having to care about it. Look, if Waco was bad, then my security force is my enemy. And I'm yeah. in a real bad spot. Yeah. But yes, with is. Oklahoma City, it goes to show, as they call it at Georgetown University, the rally around the flag effect. War, this is our slogan at antiwar.com. War is the health of the state. Mm-hmm. When the government is attacked, they love nothing more than to say, oh, boo-hoo for me. Boo-hoo for government. Rally around the state. And I'll tell you, I got the exact quote here, too. Let me find it. I got it. <laughs> you guys got me all pissed off. You didn't even warn me we're talking Oklahoma City today. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's something I'm passionate about. And it's, it's something so, that like, just ruined me last year. Where is this? Let me, oh, man. The question is whether I'm going to be able to find the quote right where I want it. But I think it is right at the start. Yeah, because this is... Yeah, here we go. It's got to be right here, right? There you go. Um, <laughs> nice. Oh, man. It's poorly paraphrased here, actually. He only has part of the quote. Uh, it's Ambrose Evans Pritchard from The Telegraph. Um, 
He says, relaxing on Air Force One after the 96 elections, Bill Clinton told a pool of reporters that he owed his political revival to the Oklahoma bombing. He was in a reflective mood, looking back at the ups and downs of his turbulent presidency. As so often, his thoughts lingered on those first painful months after the Republicans captured both houses of Congress for the first time in almost two generations. It had been a stinging rebuke for the White House. But then that bomb went off. Quote, it broke a spell in the country as people began searching for our common ground again, he said. And it, you know what? There's a better quote of that somewhere because this, he, he, he's right that this was on Air Force One and he said it in front of a pool of reporters. And I don't know why they don't have the whole quote in here, because I'm almost certain that the original quote is the Oklahoma City bombing saved my presidency, that that was the way that he phrased it. Um, and, and that because that it makes just me absolutely think, took all the heat off of him and off of the state, and it made you know right wing radical private citizens the true enemy of society. Yeah, you know they even made a movie about it, Arlington Road, with Tim Robbins and um, uh, I'm so bad at these actors, man. Not <laughs> Kurt Russell, the other guy who's like Kurt Russell, uh, Michael. I know the two that I get confused. <laughs> Michael Sheen. Anyway, Martin Sheen. We got the title Arlington Road, though. Arlington Road. And it's about a professor who's like an anti-terrorist professor. And then there's a guy in the neighborhood who's a right-wing anti-government extremist who commits an act of terrorism and frames him for it and stuff. Tim Robbins is the anti-government ah. extremist. And in that movie, the most radical right-wing anti-government extremist thing that Tim Robbins says that shows what a terrorist he is, he says, we deserve the truth. <laughs> That's the oh, most yeah, what a radical, radical. That is the worst thing that he says in the whole movie that shows what a horrible right-wing person he is. And if you know somebody like that, he's probably got a bomb in his trunk. Right. Well, and, and yeah. that was the thing, like when, when I was doing, when I was looking into Ruby Ridge in Waco, probably the most disheartening thing about it were all of the like Vox, Salon, that type of journalism. Yeah. I would, I would get, wisdom. Right. I, I would get into these, but they were written like the year before. So they were fresh and they were still blaming um, uh, Sammy Weaver on getting shot because of who his dad was. And I was just like, how are you people still saying this? Like, how, yeah. how did you say it in the first place? And so, like, it's you, you talking about how Bill Clinton had said that the bombing saved his presidency. That does make me think of another claim that I heard. I've never substantiated, but I'm talking to Scott Horton. So I'm sure you actually do know this. Um, I heard that in one of the Bush's memoirs that it was directly mentioned that H.W. Uh, had told George W. Bush that if he wanted to stay president and go into a second term, he had to have a war going on. Sort of, but strike that and reverse it. It was Junior said that to his father. Don't okay. you got to go all the way to Baghdad. You don't want to end the war too soon because you want to make sure that you're in the middle of a war come reelection time, which is what a lot of people said at the time. But Bush Sr. had essentially boxed himself into a situation where he had this massive United Nations coalition that had a very limited mandate to force Iraq out of Kuwait. And if he continued on to Baghdad, then Syria and Egypt and all the other Arab states who were involved and, you know, would have objected. And the uh, Soviet Union, which was uh, in the middle of falling apart but had not ceased to exist yet, it would have, you know, possibly jeopardized relations with them because he had promised the Russians he wasn't going to go further than the mandate, this kind of thing. 
And frankly, I think they were really afraid what was going to happen if they went all the way to Baghdad and how they were going to control the situation. So they called it off. But the problem was Bush's Bush senior we're talking about now, 1991, yeah. his approval rating at the end of Iraq War One was something like 90 percent. It was incredible. Mm-hmm. But it, the election wasn't for another year and a half. And he yeah. lost because by the yeah. time in 1992, nobody cared what a big war hero he was for saving the king of Kuwait. Who cares about that? You know, we're and then we're in the middle of the war recession from the bubble popping from the from the money that they created to make the war seem free. And so, you know, he had to pay that price. So then W learned that lesson. And it was, you know, and this is to him, this counts to W. Bush as real deep thinking that, you know what, you got to be in the middle of a war. Mm-hmm. And so, and I have the, I have the quote in the new book. He told when he was the governor, he told his biographer, Mickey Herskowitz, if I have a chance to attack Iraq, I'm going to take it. Because what you want to do is you want to be in the middle of a war. It's got to be kind of a small, easy war, you know, but you want to be in the middle of it for your reelection. And then so Mickey Herskowitz, like, put that out. Um, I, I forgot exactly how this happened. I think maybe they went ahead and published the original ghostwritten autobiography of the governor or they were about to or something. And then they scrapped it and fired him and they brought in someone new. And Karen Hughes wrote the ghost wrote the book for W. And they got rid of this Herskowitz. And then later he put that quote out and said, he told me this. I got it on tape. You know, he told me this. And then, by the way, so Bush Sr., after that, Bush Sr. hired this same guy, Herskowitz, to write the biography of Prescott Bush, his father, the senator. So apparently they didn't think that he was a horrible liar who had, you know, put these false words in W's mouth because they went ahead and kept him on for another major family project after that. Um, and I think Bush did try to dispute the quote, but it's so obvious that it's true. And, and you know, I was remembering this recently that Bill Crystal and I didn't know who Bill Crystal was at the time yet as this kingpin in the neoconservative movement. Yeah, I just knew he was a Republican hawk, but he doesn't look like a Republican. He looks like a Democrat, yeah. you know, which is I don't know. Um, he was raised by a Trump guy. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. And and that's not like a Jewish thing, right? Because I don't think he looks particularly Jewish. If there's a if there's such a thing as a particularly Jewish look, <laughs> he, he looks like just a white guy. Right. Bill Crystal. Yeah. Um, so I don't mean it like that. I don't want anyone to misunderstand me because that's not what I'm saying. He just didn't sound like that. He didn't remind me of like James Baker, the third. That's what I thought of yeah. as the Republicans at the time. And of course, right. He's the son of a Trotskyite, right? Like these guys all came from the radical left. And so he is a bit different than what I had, yeah. you know, been raised to expect to see as a Reaganite, you know. Um, so anyway, but I remember Bill Crystal in the 90s saying, listen, and this is and, and I, I like glommed onto this. I knew that this was right. And I, w- I went around repeating it to people that this is absolutely mm-hmm. the case that as as Bill Crystal put it, if and Crystal was wanted this to happen, was rooting for him. But if W. Bush wins the election of 2000, then great, because then it's guaranteed that he will have to go back to Iraq because look at the embarrassment of the father losing after four years and only being a one term president Mm -hmm. and leaving office with Saddam Hussein still in the chair laughing at him over in Iraq. And so now, eight years later, an entire presidency later, two term presidency later, now the son is going to come sitting, you know, and be the president and sitting in this chair. 
there's no way that he can take the risk because he's not a dictator, right? He's got to stand for election. So there's no way he can take the risk that after four years, he will also be a one-term loser president like his father and Saddam Hussein will still be in the chair laughing at his ass. No way. Even if he's going to lose after four years, it's going to be four years after killing Saddam Hussein and making sure that that is not a possibility. And I just knew that that was right. That And at least that that would be the argument of the Hawks, that one, you're right, you got to be in the middle of a war to make sure you win re-election, which worked for W. Yeah. Bush in 2004, sure um, by the way. Um, but also that imagine the family embarrassment if you took the risk and you were unelected after four years and Saddam Hussein was still there. You can't do that. You absolutely have to go to Iraq one way or the other. And then look, Paul O'Neill, his first Treasury Secretary, said at the first cabinet meeting, Bush said, look, find me a way to attack Iraq. We're going to Iraq. That was at the first two cabinet meetings. That was all that they discussed. If I could um, just real quickly go back for some clarity about something. Um, When we were when you're talking about uh, Timothy McVeigh, um, he was a veteran of the first Iraq war Uh and he personally himself whether this is true or not it's just what he said that the events that he witnessed during the iraq war radicalized him against the government Mm -hmm. and then the events of waco and ruby ridge specifically the children being killed at waco and ruby ridge were what brought his ire to the point where he was willing to do something violent to the government and that um, placing that truck in front of that building was only the result of um, the truck not fitting into the parking deck of the other building that they intended to hit and um, that he didn't actually mean to kill these children. And so that's true. So, yeah, you were saying that he was like a confirmed neo-Nazi. And so that is um, different from the story that I heard which was that they investigated and found that he was not part of any racial radical groups. Now, of course, that's what they investigated and found. But my question is, if his motivations for radicalization were both the killing of children at Waco and Ruby Ridge and the massacre of civilians at uh, Iraq, it doesn't seem to fit the character of this person to intentionally try to bomb children or to even be a Nazi. Like, nah, I mean, look, it's revenge. It's payback. Yeah. If somebody if somebody kills your kid and you go, I'm upset about that, mm-hmm. that doesn't preclude the idea. I don't mean to say you. If someone kills no, one's mean. kid, well, yeah. I mean, but that it changes the scenario. So I don't mean it like that. If somebody sure. kills one's kid, someone could be upset about that and then turn right around and kill the killer's kid as revenge. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and think, yeah, of course it's wrong. That's why I did it. Right. So. So the idea that he was angry at what had happened at Waco would prevent him from doing the same thing, I don't think is the right logic. His idea was this is a target and I'm going to destroy it. It's full of ATF agents. It's full of government employees and their kids are collateral damage. And that was actually a real quote of his that they're collateral damage. Well, who taught him that the U.S. Army? When you yeah. kill a um, a target in war, sometimes civilians die. So, and that's the whole thing about the difference between living in a civilization or being in a state of war, right? Yeah. Like Bugs Bunny says, of course, you realize this means war. That means that the normal rules are canceled. And now we're going to do it this way instead of that way. And so for these guys, yeah, absolutely. was paid. In fact, there's a George Carlin bit 
I guess it's not from a routine, but it's from uh, his book, Brain Droppings, and he did the audio book of it. I listen to a lot of Carlin when I'm flying around. <laughs> and he has a thing about that, about how they called it domestic terrorism. And he goes, that's really not right, because domestic terrorism is usually like a campaign, and it's meant to provoke this kind of cycle of reaction and counter-reaction and all this stuff. Eh, mm -hmm. Oklahoma was more just, I'm going to murder you back and see how you like that, was yeah. basically what happened. And I guess there is a narrative that says that they were ignorant of the daycare center and that that was counterproductive, not morally wrong, but counterproductive because it made them the bad guy in, in a way that it would not have been if it was only adult government employees who had died, which we're talking about a bunch right. of little old ladies at the social security administration right. and right. the right. interior department. And sh I mean, this is insane. Um, but um, I guess there's an argument maybe that they didn't know, but, uh, you know, I've read that. I mean, they cased the building plenty. They had to have known that there was a daycare center there. Yeah. You know, maybe they didn't realize that that was going to be the main headline was that the mm -hmm. children had been killed or whatever. And I think, but, and, but I think as far as McVeigh's ties to these Nazis, I, there's plenty of, of evidence to tie him to the Aryan Republican Army and to Elohim City and all okay. of these guys, and including informant. Yeah, they have him there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you're right, though, about him. He had a real hard time in Iraq. The stories, there's there's different versions of all of this. But one of the stories is he blew a guy's head off at range right. with a gun. And everybody said, hey, great shot, McVeigh. And he thought to himself immediately, like, oh, my God, I just killed a man. And I'm in his country. And what the hell am I doing? You know, and then, in fact, there's a book out that I have not read this. Um, I know it's like 900 pages or some massive <laughs> effort by Wendy Painting. Um, but I saw there was a, there's this a really interesting leftist that I follow on Twitter who read her book and was like tweeting it out important parts of it. And, and one of the things that I guess she had found was a lot of the information about his role in Iraq war one and how he had been involved in the slaughter, the so-called battle of Romalia, where they had, you know, massacred all of these civilians and all of these things. And so, yeah, I think that Apparently, that really played a large role in radicalizing his politics when he came back home. And this happens a lot. We, you know, we have a lot of great libertarians come from the war veterans of these wars right. and they get home and realize how lied to they've been. But you know what? They don't always become libertarians. You know what I mean? A lot of times yeah. veterans come home, they realize how betrayed and used they've been and their politics get very radical in very destructive ways. And sometimes they do become neo-Nazis and start running around with these guys. And, you know, again, it comes back to the prisons, too. So you have people thrown in jail for petty crimes. Now they're mm -hmm. soldiers. Their only skill in life is being a tough guy and fighting. Now they're locked up in a cage on some stupid possession charge or something like this. And but then in the gang, in the prison system, it's even official where they divide people by race and. Mm -hmm. And all of that kinds of things. And so then everybody, it's a matter of joining a gang for protection. You got people who never even considered Nazism in their whole life. All of a sudden are in a Nazi gang because it's the only way to survive prison um, and that kind of so, thing. And that's where I think a lot of these movements really come from. Why do you think that even though the conditions that supposedly have created Timothy McVeigh are so much um, have increased so much since his time, like those exact conditions have been the conditions for many thousands at this point. Um, why have we not seen more events like this? Uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm grateful for it. Um, that no, there have, I mean, sure. there have been, I mean, there, there have been a lot of soldiers who have moved pretty far to the right and, um, and, and join, you know, some outright racist movements and stuff like that. But um 
You know, mostly not. I mean, honestly, I think maybe part of, part of the answer is that just like um, in the 1990s, as I was saying with the militia movements really not being Nazis, that I think you have that here too. You have the Proud Boys and the Three Percenters and the, uh, help me out, I'm, I'm spacing out. I know there's one other major. Uh, but yeah, the Boogaloo Boys. So these oh, guys yeah. are, they're like radical rights. They're to the right of the libertarians and to the right of the Republicans for sure. But they're not right. Nazis. So I think they kind of, uh, they're like the buffer. I think they catch yeah. a lot of guys who then they come home and join the modern version of the 90s militias who, again, did not sit around talking about blacks and Jews. They had different problems in that. And they, and they might have complained about, you know, mass immigration from Latin America and that kind of thing. But that's not necessarily Nazism. That's just conservatism at that point, you know. So I actually grew up in northern Michigan. And as you might imagine, okay. around quite a lot of militia people. And I have very clear memory of um, Oklahoma City. I was nine years old and we were swimming in a lake um, in Upper Michigan. And my grandmother came running out onto the deck, screaming for us to get back into the house. Um, because this event, even though we were in Michigan, this event happening on TV was terrifying to her because nothing like this had ever happened before. And she thought we were in danger and needed to come get us. And what you were saying two familiar phrases from my own childhood was we can't blame it, it wouldn't be fair to blame the muslims they we don't know that the muslims did this was something i remember hearing that day either from the television or from someone around me and mm -hmm. then secondly was the um deep need of the mili militia members in in my world to disassociate themselves from racism and racist movements and saying this isn't us this isn't what we're about this guy's this guy made us all look terrible and i i remember that very very clearly pointing yeah. out how he's a lone wolf he did this on his own he was you know not associated with us in any way and that was a very um emotional time yeah. for people and back to your question too um i think it may be that this would not have happened at all if it had not been for FBI agent provocateurs infiltrating these groups and pushing them yeah. on to do this. The worst thing that the uh, radical right has been accused of lately is this plot to kidnap the governor of Michigan. Mm -hmm. But it is yeah. you know, obvious that there are huge questions about how much of this was the FBI and the informants doing in setting this whole thing up. Um, and look, if you're that easy to entrap, in a plot like that then <laughs> you're you're at least guilty of felony stupidity but maybe not really that guilty of plotting to kidnap the governor um in this case and this is not conclusive um but i think there's a lot i think there really is a lot to it and my gut tells me that this is really what's right is andre carl strassmeyer was a german army intelligence officer who uh, had infiltrated the radical right in the U.S. and was working for the CIA and the DIA and the, uh, pardon me, the DEA and, and mm -hmm. basically was a cutout for American um, federal police agencies to infiltrate the radical right. And then I think that there's, uh, there's plenty of compelling evidence, not a conclusive case, but plenty of compelling evidence that the entire bombing at least sprang from if, 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 it's, if, if it's not the entire kind of um, story, that at least it originated, that the plot itself originated as something that was spurred on by this agent provocateur who had encouraged McVeigh to do it and possibly had conspired with him and helped him to do it. 
and then was spirited out of the country and essentially was let go. But at the time, especially back then, everybody was pointing fingers. All these right-wing militia guys like you're talking about, they were like, Strassmeyer at Elohim City, he's the one, <laughs> not us, it was him. And it was like, they all knew that he was the guy. Because again, yeah. they were all just a couple of steps of Kevin Bacon away from the dude. So they knew that it, it wasn't us, it was them. And, yeah. and now... <clears throat> No. So, you know, so people don't read me wrong there. I don't think that it's I'm not saying that they had a plan like, yes, let's get our own building blown up. I think the idea, most likely the Occam's razor thing would have been that we'll get these guys to conspire to do something terrible and criminal and then we'll bust them. Right. But mm -hmm. then the thing fell apart and the right. bus never happened and the crime took place anyway. And that seems well, to be the most reasonable explanation for what happened there, that they provoked it as a big sting and then the whole thing went to shit. Yeah. And one of the things is, you know, you said I, I got I got pissed off. I'm not I know you talk about Oklahoma City and I'm like, I'm sorry for pissing you off. But I think that that may be one of the things that I appreciate most about you is the fact that you piss me off to about all the right things, all the things <laughs> that I should be pissed off about. You tell me about. And I really appreciate that. And and like I said, when I did the the red pills and when I was looking into that, uh, I kept running into all of these apolo uh, uh, apologies, you know, like apologetics for um, why the Branch Davidians deserve to die, why um, the uh, Sammy Weaver or uh, Vicky Weaver should have been shot because of who she was married to because they decided to get away, whatever. And then what was interesting about it is as I was reading that, one of the ideas that kept coming to mind and one of the things that I kept thinking about are all of the um, apologetics for um, the the nuking of Japan. Yeah. And, and that's something that, that came to my mind because I was like, this is, this is the same kind of um, programming of how, yeah. how we, we make the enemy. We, and even libert some libertarians out there We'll talk yeah. about how it was right to nuke Japan and it wasn't a terrorist action. And it was, it, that's what I think, I don't know if, if it pisses you off as much as it does me, because oh, that's like the thing that pisses me off the absolute most are people who apologize for horrendous, horrible things. Like you know what, man? There's a study come out. They, they just did a poll said the number of Americans who identify China as America's greatest enemy has doubled from 25% a year ago, one year ago, to now 50%, half of America says China's our greatest enemy. Well, what's China done in the last year? Nothing. The only thing that's changed is more propaganda on TV about China, period. There's not new things that they have done that change anything. It's all just public relations. Whose side are you on? Worse, it's all social psychology. Mm -hmm. Are you with them or are you with us? Are you on this side or are you with that side? Go back to Iraq War Two. I know you guys were young, but you remember about how this was. Yeah. That um, essentially the entire right half of the American population could not understand or believe or countenance for a moment. They could not fathom how it was that the other half of America didn't want to go and fight the country that attacked us on September 11th. Right. The level of contempt that the right held for the entire left half of the country, right? 150 million people. Well, you can all go to hell. You don't want to fight back against the Iraqis who attacked us. You know, screw you. 
you go to hell and you die, as Mr. Garrison said. <laughs> right. And then the other half of the American population was saying, no, you stupid sons of bitches. Iraq didn't do it. That's why we don't want to attack them. Of course, if Iraq did do it, then we'd be having a whole different conversation. Right. <laughs> but on yeah. the right side, the idea was. You're a hippie. You're a homo. You're a traitor. You hate America and we hate you. You don't want to fight back. You don't want to defend this country against our terrorist enemies. And it's because they're stupid and wrong, frankly. <laughs> but their frame, because their frame of reference, their their initial premises were all wrong. Mm -hmm. Then they mm -hmm. continued to make extremely lousy conclusions. Right. So it's the same thing with Nuke in Japan. It's the same thing with anything. Same thing with being afraid of China right now. Your dad and your Uncle Bob and your minister and your coach and all the guys at the gym say we should fight China. I heard they're genociding the Uyghurs. Now, right. are you a hippie? And are you a commie? And you hate America? And you got to sit there and explain to all these people that, no, guys, it's just the war party is raping you in your brain butt again, and you're letting them again, right? Yeah. Or you're just going to sit there and say, yeah, them damn you know yellow peril coming our way and whatever and it's just easier to go along and people just go along they don't know it not your dad and your uncle bob and your gym coach and your mister they don't know the first thing about the xinjiang province or what's going on there they just know that yeah. that's what they're supposed to say because they heard that crap on fox news oh the full-on gong cult publishes this thing that claims this and good enough for me and the same yeah. thing again going back to nuking japan you know it's the number one best way to explain to a right winger why it's not right why it was wrong to nuke japan in fact it's really funny you can see this happen. you could do this as a social experiment someone should like do a, a a tv documentary about this where it's like the man on the street thing first you go you tell them how wrong it was to nuke japan and you make them so mad that they want to fight because they can't believe it because their dad and their minister and their uncle bob and everybody says of course we got to nuke these guys and and why would we have done it if we didn't have to do it I and mean, what are you talking about why do you hate America so much, right? And then you explain to him that, guess what? Admiral Leahy and General MacArthur and Admiral Nimitz and uh, and Paul Nitsa, who was, I guess, a captain at the time, um, all of these right-wingers, including MacArthur, including Curtis LeMay, said we didn't have to do that. They were against it. Now, if, and oh, I left out Nimitz. If Admiral Nimitz and Admiral Leahy and General MacArthur and Curtis LeMay were against nuking Japan, well, then you're a fucking idiot if you're for it, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> Why would General MacArthur be against nuking anybody? Right. If it didn't, if it needed to be done. You think he would withhold that if he thought it was necessary? Curtis LeMay, who burned all of Tokyo to the ground with napalm? Mm said, we didn't have to hit them with that awful thing. No, that was Eisenhower. That was General Eisenhower, the five-star general, supreme allied commander of all NATO forces in Europe in World War II, later two-term Republican president. So we didn't have to hit them with that awful thing. Yeah. So now it's Ike and Nimitz and Leahy and MacArthur and, Le and I say LeMay again, and all of them versus your right-wing Uncle Bob. Now who's a hippie and a commie and doesn't know what the hell they're talking about, you know? And, and that's the reality of the situation. It was the Democrats that did that. And the American mm -hmm. conservative movement roundly condemned it. And you can read it, the American conservative magazine. I forgot who wrote this now. There's a great article about how 
all of the Catholic, the right wing Catholic papers and the right wing Protestant papers and the Sunday morning post and everybody opposed it. Everybody yeah. said that Truman, you know, um, uh, Zora Neale Houston, uh, Hurston uh, called Truman the butcher of Asia mm. and said he was a war criminal, no different than the Japanese he defeated. But, oh, well, nah, screw that, dude, because you know what? In fifth grade, they said the true man would not have done it if he didn't have to. And that's all you need to know. And right. Jane Fonda and, and some tie-dye stoners said <clears throat> that we didn't. And so whose side are you on? You're on the same side as your minister or you're on the same side of this dope smoking white guy with dreadlocks. Right. And then so you make your pick and it's all about social psychology. It's not about what happened to the Japanese. It's not about the decision that Truman made to impress Stalin by nuking mm -hmm. a, a bunch of civilians in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, including right. obliterating the Christian movement in Japan that was centered in Nagasaki, of course. And including in both cities had American POWs there, uh, which, by the way, interestingly, all the PO, all the American POWs in Nagasaki survived simply by jumping into a ditch, which just goes wow. to show that they're not really they're not terribly effective military weapons. You know, they're mm -hmm. they're good for indiscriminate mass murder of innocent civilians. You, you drop one on a city center, but in terms of infantry. There are loopholes like trenches. Well, it, it wasn't a, a weapon. It was a message as far as my understanding yeah, right. goes. Yeah. And there's right. a great there's a great historian called Gal, uh, uh, pardon me, Gar Alperwitz. And I've interviewed him before. And I think he's done the most and best work on this. But there's plenty of work has been done on this where they said in their own language that they did this to impress Stalin, to let him know that we had it. <laughs> and the Japanese had been surrendering, you know, had been attempting to sue for peace since March. Well, yeah, and, and that's that's what what's interesting is because, like I said, you, I've seen uh, so-called libertarians arguing this point, and they're like, "Well, you know, th that that's all that could have been done. There was no, there was no surrender that was going to happen, and all and th like there are all of these things that you heard when you were in fifth grade, but that if you if you go, well, what but really the Soviets happened? were coming? What right. do you mean? There's no surrender was going to happen. They were about to have the Red Army." marching across their entire chain of islands they preferred to surrender to the americans thank you very much <laughs> yeah you know they had no ability and people say you know it was funny because they the the number just gets inflated over and over and over to the point where at, at by the time of george hw bush he said a million american soldiers and marines would have died invading japan where come on and all of their worst estimates were that fifty thousand would die and we're yeah. talking about combatants. And it's true that they were conscripts and fighting age males, and that ain't quite fair. But still, you're talking about dropping a nuke on a city. As, um, and for good libertarians who want to know, you know the libertarian heritage of, the, uh, you know, of our analysis as a movement on this, is read Hiroshima and Nagasaki by Ralph Rako. And Ralph Rako says, now, wait a minute. If our guys had just gone and rounded up all the men, women, and children of Hiroshima in the center of town and machine gunned them to death like the Gestapo, would that have been okay? Because when the Gestapo did that, we said that that was what proved that the Gestapo was the Gestapo. <laughs> that was what was bad about them. That was what proved how illegitimate of a force they were and how righteous our cause was in destroying them. So would it have been fine to round up the men, women, and children of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and machine gun them to death in the town square? And if not, then how's it any better to do fission over their head? Right. Right. It's and and a lot of people, it's worse only. Yeah. Well, and, and the, but that's, 
that's a way that most people don't think about it. They, when they think of, I, I think that most people don't have any clue of what kind of devastation that was yeah. because it's not well, something they've ever too. experienced. I'll tell you this too, about a year ago, year and a half ago, a guy sent me super high quality scans, like ultra high quality scans of panorama pictures of all of Hiroshima that his grandfather took. Oh, wow. In other words, I have on my computer right now the best worst pictures of the aftermath of the Hiroshima bombing that anyone has ever seen. Yeah. I got to see that. And I'm, I'll tell you, and I can't share them. I can't share them. But you know, you can look up Hiroshima 1945 in your Google images and you can see plenty. There's a documentary. um, There's a documentary called White Flash Black Rain um, that I thought really brought life to what had happened. You know, because yeah. these were people, they were individuals, they were right. conducting their whole lives. And policy. I read a thing that if you dig a couple of feet down, there's bones everywhere in, right. in, in Hiroshima right now. You can't do anything without disturbing human remains. The images of um, people walking down the street that had been basically like photo blasted onto the sides of buildings yeah. right. because their shadow uh, just momentarily blocked the light that would was otherwise scalding the face off of this building. I mean, it's, it's really before I think I, every time I see someone defending that event as something that needed to happen, I tell them to watch that documentary. I don't think anybody has, but I think if you did watch it, you would have a really hard time saying this was a justified action. That's cool. You send me a link to that. Absolutely. Great. I'd love to see that. And it, and, and it makes me like you, you're you talking about rounding up the men, women and children and shooting them. It makes me think about the because my lie, that was an example of something smaller than what what happened at Nagasaki and Hiroshima. But it's it's not talked about enough. But the the my lie massacre is anytime anyone hears about it, they go, well, that was obviously wrong. That was obviously bad. But it was, and it obviously was, but at the same time, it paled in comparison to Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Or the whole war, right? I mean, when we talk about Vietnam, we go, well, somewhere between three and five million people were killed. Well, how many my lies is that? I'm not good at decimal points live on the air. 500 (laughs) killed versus five million. They bombed Laos every day for 10 years for no reason at all. Uh, There's the footage. You can see this. It's in... uh, uh, it's an American Holocaust. I'm almost certain it's an American Holocaust where they show the congressional testimony of the Air Force captain. And he says he's essentially explaining that he kept bombing Laos for years and years and years, even though he had no targets. And the congressman says, what do you mean? You had no targets. You just kept bombing them anyway for years. And he goes, well, they kept sending me bombs. I had to get rid of them. I couldn't just let them pile up on the tarmac. And so then that was it. And they're just blasting people, just blowing them apart by the tens of thousands, by the hundreds of thousands for years and years and years and years on end. When they got no enemies to fight, they're just out there getting rid of ordnance so they can replenish it. I mean, talk about a self-licking ice cream cone. When people talk about Vietnam, Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia, uh, and killed by the Americans and the results of the American war there. The estimate is somewhere between three and five million. And then, so yeah, it, I mean, this is, this is the thing of it, right, man? It is the American government still thinks, and, and you listen to these people, they believe it. Yeah. They still think that America is Christopher Reeves, Superman, you know, the total yeah. boy scout, 
who just we do nothing but go around all day selflessly saving kittens from trees and helping little girls and being friends. But for the rest of the world, they're looking at this and saying, that's not right. I mean, think about when America supports Suharto overthrowing Sukarno and supports Suharto going around and murdering half a million Indonesians, rounding up anybody who leans left and murdering them. And then the East Timorese too, which is really a separate nation that they just occupied and stole and just butcher these people. Well, that's Americans gave the green light for all of that. This is the mm -hmm. American world empire. Indonesia is a part of it. And yep. when the Indonesian government does this, you know, virtual auto genocide, that's on us. That's our government. That's Henry Kissinger went over there under Gerald Ford and gave him the green light to go after the Timorese. Go ahead, man. We got your back. We'll make sure nobody does anything about it. Now, look at what's going on in Yemen right now. I guarantee right. you when this thing's over and they're done counting the excess death and all of that, it's we're talking probably three quarters of a million dead, maybe more than that. And the official numbers now are a quarter of a million dead, but it's got to be double that. Absolutely yeah. has to be at least double. And, and, and it just goes on year after year after year. And they asked Donald Trump, why are we doing this? He's just for the money. Yeah. And he makes up this ridiculous number. The Saudis are spending $450 billion on American weapons. Yeah. Over the next century, they are $450 billion. What a bunch of crap. They spend about $4 billion a year. $4 billion, which is nothing. Which, yeah. if you took that away from the American economy, would hurt the dividend receivers of the Raytheon stock owners and no one else at all. Yeah. You know? Um, but, and then this just goes on decade yeah. after decade after decade and where, yes, where your fifth grade teacher will tell you that nuking Hiroshima is inarguable. Of course it was the right thing to do. Otherwise, why do we do it? And as you talked about, you know, radicalized soldiers coming home, it's mm -hmm. a big part of it is soldiers join right out of high school, pretty much 17, 18 years yeah. old. They've been told the whole time to expect their enemies essentially are the German army. They're going to meet them in the field out there in France somewhere where everyone they engage is an enemy in a gray coat who deserves to die, who serves yeah. Hitler and is the enemy of mankind. And you're going to be out there wearing olive green, which is your loophole through the thou shalt not kill commandment from God, the creator of the universe. And that says that, no, as long as you're wearing olive green and you're doing it for your country, it's the right thing. And you learn in government school your whole life that your government is your country. And the mm -hmm. politicians who run your government, they're the best people that we could have or they wouldn't be there. And they were chosen by the people to make these decisions because they're the best people to make these decisions. And they wouldn't make the decisions they make if they weren't the right decisions to make. Otherwise, why would they make them? And so there's just layers upon layers upon layers of legitimacy baked into the whole thing. Then they get over there and they're like, dude, I'm patrolling Pashtun Minutemen in their own neighborhood. Mm -hmm. I call them the Taliban like they're the foreign invaders, yeah. but it's their neighborhood and I'm the foreign invader and my buddy just died with his guts all over the ground. And what the right. hell are we even doing here on the literal other side of the planet, 180 degrees away from the middle part of North America where they're from and they come home all shell shocked and they come home finally now understanding that they weren't fighting for freedom. They weren't fighting to protect their little sister from violence. They weren't fighting to save the sacred bill of rights. They were being used yeah. and, and to do in many cases, terrible things to participate in horrible acts of violence against other people.
and then it burns like hell. You know, that's the whole thing. The, the gap between the truth and the narrative is so vast. Mm -hmm. And people, this is why it's funny. I, I kind of am bothered by this, but I guess it's just, it's a huge thing, not just in the libertarian movement, but kind of all over the place about the red pill and that, mm -hmm. that um, metaphor from the matrix where you stop believing in all this bullshit all of a sudden and recognize that everything is different than they told you that it was. Yeah. And um, I think Bill Hicks is right about this. I mean, people really need to do psychedelics at least once or <laughs> twice or three times or some kind of thing, just so you can hear your own voice questioning whether you really think the things you think you think or whatever, just for a minute. You know, and I think people, they just get so stuck behind looking through their own eyeballs and they don't have the ability to catch that third person point of view until something really traumatic happens. Some like really life shattering event comes and smacks them upside the head, sometimes a lot harder than they're ready for, you know, but um, and it's going to be a problem. I mean, it's um, it, it is a problem for a lot of guys and and. Um, you know, we haven't had big Oklahoma City type events, but I think, um, well, more and more you're going to see as as the gap between the, the politics of the American people and especially the more radical populist right and left, the gap between that and the ruling center elite grows, you know, mm -hmm. larger and larger. I think that, yeah, you're going to see real problems because what do you do with that many disaffected people, that many right. betrayed and and, um, you know, they can't make money. The economy's destroyed. Uh, and, and even if the lockdowns hadn't happened last year, we were due for a major crash anyway. We've been riding on a massive inflationary bubble for 12 years. It had to come due. Um, and and um, so, yeah, I don't know. I, I think, you know, America's got a lot of problems and militarism is at the core of almost all of them. Absolutely. You know, and it's going to continue to make everything else worse, too. And by the way, I mean, uh, Joe Biden's threatening to get us into a nuclear war with Russia over Ukraine right now. And, you know, never mind okay. the stupid war on terrorism. Right. Um, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> it was probably going to be something about what? <laughs> um, no, it was. Um, I th Oh, that's what you mentioned. COVID. And I think that probably the worst part of the coronavirus and the, the what the government did with coronavirus was that you were supposed to have a Soho Forum debate with Bill Crystal in New York oh, when I was living. On. When it's still going to happen. But at that point, I was living in Pennsylvania, so it was something that I could have gone to physically. And I'm yeah. in Florida now; like it's <laughs> I know. a lot harder um, to get there. And you know what? <laughs> I mean, honestly, I hope he's not watching this because I don't want to give away my whole game plan or whatever, but it would have he's been not. a lot funnier if Donald Trump had been the president at the time of the debate. <laughs> yeah. You know, the fact that it's Biden and now everything is back to normal and whatever is kind of makes it less hilarious because I was going <laughs> to my whole thing was going to be about how Donald Trump was Bill Crystal's son. And as much as Bill Crystal hates him, he's the only he literally personally is the only reason Donald Trump ever could become the president is because mm -hmm. the Washington establishment listened to Bill Crystal and invaded Iraq and, and blew America's entire wad and broke America's entire power in the sands of Mesopotamia and, and reduced the Bush Clinton centrist dynasty, you know, consensus to ashes. 
yeah. and allowed for somebody who claims to be a populist right winger to win over the conservatives. I mean, look at John Kasich by the book. John Kasich should have been the nominee. <laughs> good moderate centrist. And the people don't want that anymore. And why not? Because the good moderate centrist listen to Bill Crystal and ruin everything. And I had a whole great rap about it where it was going to be funny as hell, too. Um, <laughs> so we still might debate. And 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 I I believe Gene is pushing for next month. I haven't oh, heard man. anything for a while, but he he wants it to be this May instead of last May. So I don't know if it's going to happen or not, but I'm ready for Eddie. Put me on a plane. I'll get up there and do my best anyway. I don't know. And what was what was funny is I found that out because I just happened to be on the Soho forum. like, And I saw you and bill crystal and i was like <laughs> wow i don't know <laughs> you know what i really I'll, want I'll, that um, to happen. i was actually surprised that he would do it no nah, i wasn't i mean he's a very self-confident guy if nothing else okay you know, bolton wouldn't you know young americans for liberty tried to get bolton to debate me and and his people refused um, <laughs> i'm sure they did but uh you know i and, will not and, debate scott horton <laughs> You know, I'm not that good of a debater. I've only actually been in one debate before. And of course, mm -hmm. I, I pretty much only interview good guys on my show. I don't really want to fight yeah. with the bad guys on my show. So I just, you know, interview the guys who deserve the coverage. Um, I, I feel that. And uh, I did a debate back in 2008 and I beat the neocon pretty handily, but um, I also didn't listen to him. I was like <laughs> looking at my notes and trying to think of what to say and i missed a bunch of crazy shit that he said that i should have responded to and whatever anyway i learned a lesson or two from that but uh <laughs> i don't know how it would go honestly i've never been and like this is the way it's supposed to be is like oh you get 15 minutes and he gets 15 minutes and then he gets a rebuttal and you get a rebuttal and then you ask each other questions and then the audience questions and all this like i've never done something like that bill crystal's yeah. been in a hundred of those although He's always going against people who would recommend restraint and realism versus <laughs> a more interventionist type thing in a way that's very professional and professorial where mine well, is a more morality based kind of a yeah. foreign policy, as well, the neoconservatives might say. Right. And I think that that's why I connect with you uh, in a lot of ways is because my move from being in the, the family who wanted Bush more than two times to being an anarchist was because I heard Dr. Paul make an, uh, his, his uh, speech imagine mm -hmm. where he talked about, put yourself in the shoes of the people in Afghanistan. Talk, you know, he talked about if China came to Texas, how would yeah. we respond? And it was that moral conversation that changed how I thought about most things. It was, and, and then is seeing, I think probably one of the most heartbreaking things to me, because I've, I've had a lot of these like personal lessons when it comes to these horrifying things in life. And one of them was I had a really good friend who was a good Christian boy, was a very nice kid. And then he joined the army and he, he did a, uh, a tour in Afghanistan and he came back and he tells me this story and I won't say his name because I, you know, I, I, I hope, I hope he finds Jesus, but <laughs> he sits down and he's telling us the story about how he drove the Humvee through the city and that he was not supposed to stop the Humvee for any reason because of IEDs or whatever, whatever the reason is, he's not supposed to stop. And he told me about the time that some kids were running across the road and he sped up a little and ran over one of them and was laughing as he told me this. This was a person who I'd known and was a, a fairly good person. 
and he came back a monster. And I was, that was another one of the, where I was like, these are the things we should hate. These are the things that the state does to dehumanize people to the point of not looking human anymore. And that's why I appreciate you coming on and you doing what you do, doing 5,500 interviews. If everyone should be listening to on Friday for your, for your 5,500th interview, but you doing what you do. And in, in some sense, what, what we do is we're trying to find like as malice uh, talks about the white pill, we try to find the, the, the silver lining. We try to find the little bit of, hope that we can act out the little bit of fight we can do to beat these things. So I deeply appreciate you coming on. But one of my questions that I, t I ask everyone who comes on is what is it out there that gives you hope that we can in some, even the smallest ways come up against this immorality, this degeneracy, this horror and come out the other side feeling like we've done something. I want to know what gives Scott Horton hope. Uh, yeah, I don't know, man. Um, I mean, I guess it's war is a government program. So, you know, eventually that's what's so bad about it. It's why it's always so, so disastrous. But essentially it means that, you know, they undermine faith in their own project, you know, with their reaction. I don't know how anybody can believe them anymore. I mean, the polls show super majorities of the population say we never should have fought in Iraq and Afghanistan at all. And not just that they want home now, but we never should have even done that. Right. So it's just a matter of, you know, we need to help people prioritize this as something that really is what matters most. It's, it's militarism is at the root of so many of our own problems here in America. And it really should be the thing that the progressive left and the constitutionalist right led by the libertarians can really get our all of our act together to oppose and and fix i'm not naive uh, and i right. don't i don't have a billion dollar pr campaign to help make this happen or anything but all of the potential is there right but really you know hope doesn't have much to do with it i mean frankly you know it's wrong so we got to fight it and what are you going to do you know do your best i got People do tell me regularly that they either didn't join or they left the service because of me um, or because of, you know, people they heard on my show said a thing that made them think twice or whatever it was. So I'll take those little victories. I got one of those today on Twitter, a guy saying, you know, he's oh, yeah. leaving the service because of me. So I take those or, you know, that's a little bit of a boost. But ultimately, you know, for the people who understand what the truth is, we have a responsibility to explain the truth to other people. You know, because a lot of people, they need a translator, frankly, right, to explain yeah. what it is that's not true about what they're saying, why you don't have to believe in this, why you don't have to go along with the, again, the social psychology of this. Everybody you know says that you got to believe in this bullshit. You don't have to believe in this bullshit and let them right. off the hook. Let them know that they don't have to. You know, that was what was so important about George Carlin to me was mm -hmm. essentially what George Carlin said to me was like, come on, you don't have to believe in this in any of it. In any of it, they come to you and beating you over the head about what you have to believe. You don't have to believe that. You don't right. have to believe anything. You don't have to. You can, you don't have to keep anybody's counsel but your own about mm -hmm. what you think is right or what you think mm -hmm. is true. And um, 
So, you know, I think that's our job, right? Is just showing people that you don't have to give in to this kind of pressure. And that, yeah. and once you don't feel like you have an obligation to go along with it, then it's pretty easy to see through the rest, right? Like oh, you're yeah. telling your story about Ron Paul. Once Ron Paul got you to, to break from the grip of the, the pressure of, of conforming with that side, at that with that side's point of view, well, boy, you learned a lot real quick about what's really happening instead, right? Because yeah. you just, you're not constrained by that anymore. Well, so what's funny, what's funny about that is I, job. You know, I'm, I made the mistake of going to college. Um, so I had a lot of student debt mm-hmm. and, uh, right after, like around the same time I had been looking, one of my friends was really pushing me to join the Navy. And he said, you know, they'll pay off your college debt. You won't have that anymore. You can just do this. And I, I was thinking about that. And he set me up with a, um, conversation with a recruiter for the Navy and literally three days before I heard that speech by Dr. Paul. And so I walked in and I talked to this, this Navy recruiter and he was like, yeah, you know, we're there's Afghanistan. And I, and I just looked at him and I said, why are we in Afghanistan? And the dude couldn't answer the question because he gave kind of these things. And I was like, no, no, really, why are we there? And he couldn't answer it. And I was like, no, I'm not doing this dude. And I was out. <laughs> That's great. That's great. <laughs> because, you know, like they, they have a lot of different ways to get people to do it. And they, they pulled on my, my strings and tried to sell me the bill of goods. And if it weren't for Dr. Paul and then eventually you, Tom Woods, all of the greats, I wouldn't be here doing what I'm doing, which is enjoying myself by like just beating on bad guys. Like that's my thing. I want <laughs> Great. On bad guys. Great. Um, but We're yeah, happy so- to have you, man, on our side. We need you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and you um, too. I didn't, I didn't mean to say, man. <laughs> You're just hiding behind the camera over here. I got you. <laughs> um, but yeah, with with that, um, I can't tell you how much I appreciate getting the chance to talk to you directly and just ask an you honor. what's in my hey. head. No, it's um, great I, to meet both you guys. Happy to do it anytime. Um, so with that, I, I do want to uh, tell people, I mean, who doesn't know how to follow you that's in the libertarian or anarchist movement. But like I said, uh, you you have a lot you have the Libertarian Institute, and you've, which is libertarianinstitute.org. You, have, you are the uh, editor-in-chief of antiwar.com. Uh, you, you have the Scott Horton Show. You're, you're on uh, Antiwar Radio in Los Angeles, right? Yeah, on uh, Pacifica 90.7 KPFK in LA. Um, you, you have two books. Um, the, the newest one is Enough Already in the War on Terrorism. And then uh, Fool's Errand, which, by the way, <laughs> yeah, I, I've, I actually have um, I have the digital two digital copies, audio and the uh, Kindle copy, because one day you tweeted out and you said, there's this thing. If you call your re- representative, I'll give you my audio book for free. And I was like, you're in. I'll, I'll do that. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. And cool. then, so I like I have that because yeah. you said, hey, could you do this thing? And I was like, yeah. I, I, if you, if you're saying it's a good idea, I do that more often. I forgot about that. It, it worked. Yeah. And I, I, uh, I appreciate you. Is there anything else you want to tell people about that may not know what you're doing? Is there anything I missed? No, not really. As far as that. I mean, I, I do hope people read the book, the blue one there, uh, other side, uh, enough already. <laughs> um, that's everything I'm mad about. Uh, all the stuff I could think <laughs> tell you from all the wars, from Jimmy Carter all the way through Donald Trump. And so that's 
Fool's Errand was chapter two of Enough Already that kind of got out of control and turned into a whole book. And then I started over again. And so this is a brief take on 14 wars or so um, and everything you need to know. So that's that's pretty much what I got for you there is Enough Already. And then I'm not taking credit for this. I am the, the um, editorial director of antiwar.com. But uh, that page is the most important project on the internet. And if there's one thing that I had to leave you guys with, you know, beseeching you to, to look at, it would be make sure to add antiwar.com to your schedule and look at it every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got, um, so Jason Ditz and Dave DeCamp are our uh, news writers, but we got this new guy and I'm such an idiot. I'm spacing on his name real quick, but I'm going to find it for you here. Um, this guy used to write for us like 25 years ago or 20 years ago, Rick Rosoff, Rick Rosoff. He's yeah. great. Um, and he is now also writing with Jason and with Dave DeCamp at news.antiwar.com. And they are covering and they got original write-ups of like 10 stories a day now, every day that all the top headlines, there's all the news. And then me and Kyle Anzalone are in charge of, uh, picking a, up a few points for you. And then our regular contributors, we now have Doug Bondo and Ted Carpenter, the two very best guys from the Cato Institute, are now writing for us at antiwar.com. We've got Danny Sherson, the great anti-war hero, the major who fought in Iraq War II and Afghanistan, is a great anti-war guy. We've got Ramsey Baroud, the brilliant Palestinian professor and intellectual writer. Um, and um, uh, I'm sorry, I, there's a, a, a whole slew of, of our regular contributors now. Um, uh, it's, it's, we're just kicking as much ass as we ever have been. And, and frankly, antiwar.com is as important now as it's ever been. It's, it's, you'd almost skip Obama and Trump years. Man, it's as important now as it was during W. Bush that we have a chance to really end the war on terrorism now if we can all focus on this and prioritize this and insist on this. This is the thing. And then the next major challenge is that the Navy especially wants to pivot to Asia and the Army and Air Force want to pivot to Eastern Europe. And they could Mm. kill us all in a nuclear war with two powers that we've been friends with for 50 and 30 years with, uh, you know, friends with for 50 and 30 years, respectively. I have no reason to have a Cold War with whatsoever. So, you know, we have huge challenges and responsibilities uh, here to deal with in the Biden era. And so that's it. It's all the bad news and all of the best writers about all the bad news every day. (laughs) It, it It is a strange day that I don't read um what's on antiwar.com and lewrockwell.com like those are those those are my go-tos um but like i said i i'll tell these other these people about all the exciting things and where to find us but i i genuinely cannot thank you enough for coming on happy to do it anytime and great to meet both of you absolutely and so listeners um we have a lot of Cool stuff still coming. We've got Mike Brancatelli. You mentioned, Scott, that people need to take psychedelics. We have Mike Brancatelli, who used to be the co-host of Part of the Problem and now has a show called Mikeadelic. Oh, okay. Yeah, have, I know who you're talking about. Uh-huh. Yeah, he's, he's going to be on next week, uh, as well as uh, Joshua Smith, who you, you talked to last night. Uh-huh. Um, and then we have Clint from Liberty Lockdown after that. Carrie Wedler, and then finally, the fir- for the first week of May, we've got uh, Freckles and Brett. But uh, if you want to find me, 
at Cam Harless. If you want to find Scott at Scott Horton Show on Twitter. If you want to find Jessica, that's at Soup Canarchist. We do have a locals, themadones.locals.com. Uh, you can listen to us on wearethemadones.com or on mlgnetwork.com. If you're listening to this and you want to see Scott Horton's beautiful face as we speak this entire time, youtube.com slash themadones. And don't forget our lone and beautiful sponsor, Lauren Zotti Coffee. If you go to laurenzotti.coffee and put in the, the promo code themadones, you get 10% off. So uh, as always, dear audience, uh, live the life you want to live. Fight the bad guys. If anyone tells you any differently, tell them to go to hell. 